You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Okay, well, the title of this sermon this weekend is Cornerstone, and it comes from our gospel reading of the week. We, um, we are more or less following the uh, gospel readings uh, that come from the Revised Common Lectionary right now, and uh, during this particular season of this three-year cycle through the Gospels, uh, we're hitting some of the parables, you know, and I, I like to take these readings as they come, and uh, so we're going to be looking at one of these parables tonight. Um, before we look at this one, i got to say a few things. Um, this is, in my opinion, and I think objectively, the most provocative of Jesus' parables. Uh he had a lot of provocative parables, but this is, I think, undoubtedly the most provocative. And I want to kind of help you to understand the context in which he gives this parable. That this parable occurs at the very end of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. He's in Jerusalem, and at this point, you've got to remember, Jesus is the most famous person in all of Israel. And the prevailing word that's going around about him is, we believe this man is our God-sent Messiah, who the prophets told us about. But remember, as we've discussed in previous sermons, most Jewish people who believed that this Messiah was coming, they had a very militarized vision of Messiah. They believed that this Messiah, this God-raised person, who's going to save us is going to be a Judah Maccabee. He's going to be a militaristic, revolutionary war hero who's going to put the Romans in their place and once again establish the sovereignty of the nation of Israel. And they believe that Jesus was this man. So uh, all of this is swirling in people's heads. During this final week of Jesus' life, he's ridden down the Mount of Olives in this triumphal entry with the crowd chanting and shouting his name, and they're excited. They believe this is the moment, this is the week. Remember, it's Passover. What is Passover? Passover is one of the big Jewish feasts, but it commemorates uh, the liberation of their ancestors from Egyptian bondage and oppression. So Passover, in general, stirs up a lot of patriotism and a lot of nationalistic ideas amongst the ancient Jews, and a lot of fervor for their own liberation and revolution from Roman oppression. So all of this is converging now. Jesus, most famous man, this Messiah figure, uh, he is ridden down into Jerusalem during Passover. Normally, Jerusalem has about a couple hundred thousand people that live there at this time. But during Passover week, it swells up to about two million people from around the world. So this is a powder keg about to explode. And this is why, historically, we know Pontius Pilate, the actual historical person who hated going to Jerusalem, he just hated going, he lived up in Caesarea. He liked to stay up in Caesarea rather than come to Jerusalem. But during Passover week, Pilate always goes to Jerusalem with a large contingent of Roman soldiers 
to quell any possible riot or rebellion because if a revolution is going to begin, it's likely to happen during Passover week in Jerusalem. So you understand what's happening just socially in the city of Jerusalem at this time. You remember Jesus has already gone into the temple uh, courts and he has overturned the money changing tables and shut down the function of the temple prophetically for about, I don't know, half an hour or so, but he, he makes this big prophetic sign, just like Jeremiah hundreds of years earlier, and the people are just on edge, and they are ready to fight. They are ready to launch this thing. And the temple leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the chief priests, they are keeping a close watch on this man because they know things are about to explode and they are trying to imagine how can we put an end to this before it starts. Because if this guy sets something off, we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose our positions. We're going to lose our wealth. And the Romans are going to come and kill us all. So all of this is in the atmosphere. You're following me so far? All of, so, so this is not a parable just given in a vacuum. On some hillside to 30 people up in Galilee. No, this is right there in the temple precinct. And among the large crowd that's around Jesus are some of these temple police, members of the Sanhedrin, perhaps Sadducees, chief priests, certainly Pharisees, and they're all listening carefully to every word this man says because they are filled with anxiety about what could happen. All right, Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. We're going to hold it right there for a moment. Some very important things I got to tell you here. Um, notice how Jesus sets up the parable. He talks about a man planting a vineyard. But he includes some specific details here. He says he put a fence around it, he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower. Now, as you continue reading the parable, what you'll notice is that never again does he mention any of these other things. He doesn't talk about the fence, he doesn't talk about the wine press, he doesn't talk about the tower. He just as easily could have just said the guy built a, a vineyard and then just move on with the story. But he specifically includes these other items in the setting. Now, why does Jesus do this? Is, is this just artistic flourish? No. The reason Jesus includes these other details about the vineyard is because he is borrowing imagery originally used by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah 5, I want to show it to you. Let's look at Isaiah 5, just the first couple of verses. Look at what Isaiah writes. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. So there's the watchtower. And he cut out a wine press as well. There's the wine press. A little bit later, you'll see the fence that Jesus mentions. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now let's skip down to verse 7. The whole chapter is really good, but I just want to give you the, the most important details. In verse 7, he says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, 
but saw bloodshed. Remember what it just said in verse 2. He looked for good fruits. Instead, he saw bad fruits. So the good fruit is justice. Bad fruit is bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. In other words, oppression. So you see very clearly what Isaiah does. God is the vineyard owner who plants this vineyard, which is the nation of Israel. And the reason he plants this vineyard is because he wants fruit. He wants to see the fruits of righteousness and justice. Righteousness is proper worship and love for God. Justice is proper love and just treatment of one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. So that's what God wants from Israel. He wants to see these fruits of righteousness and justice, but instead he's getting bloodshed, violence, oppression, and that kind of thing. These are the images that Jesus is working into his parable now, hundreds of years later, and the crowd would have recognized these elements of the vineyard, and they would know, okay, he's talking about God planting Israel, the people of Israel. Now go back to the... Um, uh, the, the verse 33 in Matthew 21, it should be on the next slide, and look at the very next, the last sentence of that verse. The vineyard rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. So let me ask you this. If God is the vineyard owner and the nation of Israel is the vineyard, who are the tenant farmers? The tenant farmers are the leaders. They are the religious leaders of Israel. Sadducees, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the temple leadership, chief priests, scribes, all of those kinds of folks. This is who Jesus is talking about. Now let's continue. Verse 34. When it was time for harvest, the vineyard owner sent his servants to the tenant farmers to collect his fruit. Remember what the fruit is, righteousness and justice. But the tenant farmers grabbed his servants. They beat some of them and some of them they killed. Some of them they stoned to death. Again, he sent other servants more than the first group. They treated them in the same way. Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Now, what's happening here is insane. First of all, these tenant farmers are acting like they own the vineyard. And when the vineyard owner sends his servants to collect rightfully his portion of the fruit, they reject every one of the servants and beat them, stone them to death, kill them in various ways. And then the vineyard owner says, I'm going to send them my son because if they're not going to do the right thing for the right reasons, at least they'll respect authority. And so he sends his son, the highest authority, he sends his own son. Now, the vineyard owner here is showing a stunning amount of patience. Wouldn't you say? with these tenant farmers, he would have been well within his own right when they rejected the very first servant to kick him off the land. They're there at his mercy, and they're acting like they own the thing. They reject all of these servants, beat them, stone them to death, kill them, and then he says, I'll send my son. So he's showing an absurd amount of patience, but that's the point because the whole thing is about God and dealing with Israel. God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to call Israel to account to be a fruitful vineyard producing the fruits of righteousness and injustice and instead the leaders of Israel the tenant farmers reject those prophets quite literally beat them stone them to death and kill them and now God says I'm going to send them my own son verse 38 but when the tenant farmers saw the son they said to each other, this is the heir. 
come on, let's kill him and we'll have his inheritance. They grabbed him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Verse 41, verse 40, Jesus now turns to the crowd and he asked them, when the owner of the vineyard comes, because he's coming, what will he do to those tenant farmers? And this is the crowd responding. They said, he will totally destroy those wicked farmers and rent the vineyard to other tenant farmers who will give him the fruit when it's ready. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures, and this is a quote from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. Now, this statement, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Um, we're going to unpack that a little bit later in just a moment. Uh, but the gist of, of, of what it means is it's, it's just simply that this insignificant stone that was kind of a throwaway stone, it was rejected. It ended up becoming the foundation of everything God was doing in this world. Now, originally that was uh, meant to apply to King David. It was written about David because David, remember, he was like the most insignificant person in his family. He was kind of like a you know, okay, we're gonna just, he's going to go tend the sheep. That's where he'll do the least amount of harm. He was kind of an afterthought in his own family. And yet God takes him. He ends up becoming the foundation of the mighty ancient nation of Israel. A thousand years later, Jesus takes the same verse and he, he now applies it to himself. And be, what he's saying is, you watch, they're going to reject me. I'm a rejected stone. They're going to throw me out. But you just sit around and wait because God's going to take this stone. He's going to make it the foundation of everything he's about to do in the world. Verse 43, and we're going to park after this verse for a moment. He says, therefore, I tell you that God's kingdom will be taken away from you and will be given to a people who produce its fruit. So notice that what God is after hasn't changed. Now, this is Jesus 2,000 years ago, looking into the future, looking into new covenant times, right? But what God is after hasn't changed. What God wants from us as a people is the same thing he wanted of Israel. He wants us by his spirit and with our participation to become people who produce the fruits of righteousness and justice, who are living in proper love and worship for God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors, one another, treating one another justly with love. This is what God has always wanted, what he always will want of us. So really, that's, that's what we're all about. That's what we're supposed to be about. And whatever else we do, whatever other aims and goals that we have as a church, somehow or another, that's got to serve the greater mission of becoming fruitful people. Righteousness and justice. This is what God wants of us. And so our, our mission, our job at Village, you hear me talk about this all the time. I just repeat it because it's so important. We're not here to just secure decisions for the afterlife and sign up people for the bus to heaven. We're here simply for one thing, to participate along with God's empowering grace and becoming righteous and just people, fruitful people. And this is the emphasis consistently throughout the entire New Testament, whether we're talking about the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, which we sung about a moment ago, I'll talk about it in a moment, Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the final judgment in Revelation 20, God actually wants us to become fruitful people. 
He absolutely wants us to become fruitful people. And if we're not becoming fruitful people, yet we're satisfied with getting people to raise their hands and say a sinner's prayer, I think Jesus would warn us just like he warns these folks. God wants fruit. Amen? All right. Sorry for that little uh, diatribe. That's not really what my sermon's about. But when those things pop up, man, I want you to pay attention. I, I want to give you an assignment. Read the New Testament and see what the emphasis is on. See what God actually expects of us and how important it is. Uh, verse 44. Jesus says, Whoever falls on this stone will be crushed, and the stone will crush the person it falls on. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it, it, it comes from a rabbinic saying that was around for about 100 years before Jesus, and it went something like this. If the stone falls on the pot, woe to the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. In other words, however you draw it up, if the pot and the stone collide, it's not going to go well for the pot. So essentially what Jesus is saying is, listen, don't set yourself against me. Because what God is building, what God is doing, is going to come through this stone. It's in your best interest to make this stone the cornerstone of your life. Now let's finish the passage, verses 45 and 46. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable, they knew Jesus was talking about them. They were trying to arrest him, but they feared the crowds who thought he was a prophet. The opinion polls are still very high on Jesus. That's, that's one thing that separates Jesus from all of these folks. He does not act based on how, how people think or what people's opinion is. He is always consistent. But these other leaders are always swayed by the crowds, one way or the other. Let's pray. Lord, as we dive deeper into this, as we get into the heart of this text, once again, we pledge this time to you, and as best we know how, we want to enter into this text like little children with the innocence of little children. Letting go of anything that we're clutching onto that might prevent us from receiving what you want us to receive. Holy Spirit, we invite your work tonight. Let your word be planted deeply in each one of us. In your precious name, amen. Now, I am not uh, an architect. I'm not a, contract, con a building contractor. I am not a structural engineer. I don't know anything about any of that kind of stuff as I'm talking about a sermon called Cornerstone. Um, that's not my area of expertise, but I do know this. When it comes to buildings, foundations are all important. You know, a building is only as sound as its foundation. And if you've ever seen like diagrams and models for how they build skyscrapers, man, the higher the skyscraper, the deeper into the earth they build that foundation. It's very important. Now, in the first century in the, in the Near Eastern world, first of all, they did not build buildings like that. The foundation of a building was not built into the earth. It was the first level of the building. And remember, they would have built using stone, not wood or any other material. They don't really have, even to this day, they don't have a lot of wood in Israel. They would use what was plenteous, and that was stone. In fact, if, you, if you're not aware, you know, we, all, we always traditionally think of Jesus and his father as being carpenters 
and we imagine them working in a wood shop of some sort. But the Greek word that is translated oftentimes as carpenter, the Greek word is tecton. It's where we get phrases like tectonic plates. And in the context of first century Israel, it would be related to stonemasonry. And so this is actually what Jesus and his father and his, I'm sure his entire line of paternal figures would have been engaged in. They were stonemasons. They built, they were builders, which meant they worked with stone. And the way that they would construct buildings in the first century world, as I said, the foundation would be the first level of, uh, of the building, and they would take the largest, mightiest, sturdiest stones they could find, and they would put them at the corners of the building. And then they would begin to take other stones and build them, stack them up against the cornerstones using some type of adhesive, and then they would build towards the middle so that all of the weight of the building is resting on the cornerstones. If you, if you don't know, if, if this is not making sense to you, don't worry about it because it doesn't make any sense to me either. I'm just telling you what I know. So everything hangs upon um, the cornerstone of, of the building. And, and as you're building these buildings, you know, if you come across a stone that looks a little weak, defective, maybe it looks cracked, you would just toss it out. So what Jesus is saying very clearly is they're about to throw me away. They consider me a defective stone. I don't fit into what they're building. I'm about to be a rejected stone, but stick around. God's going to make this stone the very foundation, the cornerstone of what he's building. By the way, let me give you a juicy historical nugget for those of you that like juicy historical nuggets with hot mustard sauce. Um, Herod the Great began expanding and remodeling, rebuilding the existing temple in the year 20 BC before Jesus was born. And he began this massive expansion project, extremely impressive to this day. And it actually continued on for 83 years. They didn't finish it for 83 years. So all throughout Jesus' entire life, the project was continuing. It was still being built. They finally finished it in the year 83 AD, no, excuse me, 63 AD. An 83-year building project. They finish it in 63 AD. Seven years later, the Romans come in and raise it to the ground. But when we were in Israel this last time, this was the, my first time to get to experience this particular thing. I've been three times, but I've never done this before. This is my first time going into the rabbinic tunnels right alongside of the original temple foundation, Herod the Great's temple foundation. We went underground. We were at street level 2,000 years ago looking at the original construction of the foundation of the temple complex. I'm telling you, it's massive. And these stones, there were stones bigger than this stage that they cut and somehow moved and stacked. To this day, we're not really sure how they did it. There are different theories, but the, it is to this day an engineering marvel. And that was what Herod the Great was really good at, was engineering buildings and projects like that. Stunning, stunning work. But as they're cutting and, and, and moving all of this stone, where do you think they're getting all of these stones? this stone from they're getting it from the area just outside of Jerusalem 
rock quarries, and we know that Jesus was crucified in one of these rock quarries. So the very area where they're cutting all of this stone and moving it and then taking defective stones and throwing it back, this is where Jesus was crucified. So it puts kind of a literal spin on this saying that Jesus quotes. They're throwing me away in that rock quarry that they used to build this really impressive edifice. By the way, this is all about to come down, and God's going to take this rejected stone. He's going to make it the foundation of what he's going to do. As he says in John 2, destroy all of this, I'll rebuild it in three days. Chew on that for a little while. I, I just love that. It gives me, I got goosebumps right now. It's amazing stuff. Now, the question that this passage raises for us tonight is this. What kind of stone is Jesus in your life? All of us in this room, we are all in the process of constructing a house. We are all houses under construction. With every decision we make, with every action we take, we're in the process of building something. The question is, what are we building? And, and even more importantly, on what foundation is that house being laid? Some people build a house of fame on the foundation of their stunning good looks or on the foundation of their incredible talent or on the foundation of their amazing intelligence. There are other people who are building a foundation of comfort or, or a house of comfort on the foundation of their wealth. Other people are building a house of pride on the foundation of their accomplishments. Some people are building a house of pleasure on the foundation of their sexual escapades or experiences or their drug-induced highs. And there are other people who are building a house of self-righteousness on the foundation of their right doctrine and moral behavior. There are a lot of different houses you can build. A lot of different foundations that you can use. But the question that you've got to ask is what is going to become of that house? And what's going to become of that foundation when the winds start blowing and the rains start pounding and the storms start brewing as they invariably do? Where will your, where will your house be when you no longer have those stunning good looks? Because, you know, those tend to fade with time. The older you get, your metabolism goes out the window, your, your weight shifts, your, your wrinkles start to appear, hair starts falling out in places you don't want it to fall out, it starts growing in places you don't want it to grow. Where will your house be when your talents are no longer that exceptional? Where will, where will your house be when you no longer have that wealth? Or even if you manage to hang on to it the rest of your life, where will it be when you die because you can't take a dime of it with you? Where will your house be when the sexual escapades are getting boring or when you're no longer capable of them or when no one's interested in you any longer? Where will your house be when your accomplishments are now a distant memory? In fact, nobody even remembers them. They're just part of the dust of history. What kind of house are you building and where will it be when the rains fall and the winds blow and the earthquakes? The reality is that every house we can build on any foundation we can produce is destined to fail. It's destined to fade away. 
And what's weird is that we all know this instinctively. Like our hearts tell us this. We just try to avoid the topic because it's rather unpleasant. But at the core of our being, we know that we live in a void of nothingness. And the older people get, oftentimes, the more they tend to awaken to this reality. And if you can't handle it, what we end up doing is we try to medicate it. We run from the nothingness. We don't like that feeling of emptiness. We don't like that void, so we do whatever we can to uh, distract ourselves from it. One way of doing this is called a midlife crisis, where you start realizing that all of those hopes and dreams that I had one day established for my life, they're, maybe they're not going to pan out like I thought that they would. And you start feeling a sense of void. You start feeling that sense of emptiness, that, that something's being wasted. And all of a sudden, you, you know, sometimes guys will come to the conclusion that maybe my wife's to blame. Maybe she's the problem. Maybe I just never really loved her. But the secretary over here, she's got it going on. So you move in with her and start wearing cowboy hats and riding around on motorcycles and smoking Marlboro cigarettes and trying to, trying to find real life. And eventually, usually it takes about a year before we, you, you, you realize the painful reality. All I've done is traded one nothingness for another. And in the meantime, I've blown apart a lot of things that were actually precious and valuable. But that's what some people do to run from the nothingness. Other people pour themselves into entertainment and just veg out on movies or video games their entire life. Other people can pour themselves into sports activities or political activities. Other people pour themselves into their work and become workaholics. Or they become uh, people who try to live vicariously through others. They try to suck life off of their kids and, and their kids' accomplishments which I think is the most pathetic version of all. Other people try to live through celebrities. That's why TMZ is such a huge enterprise, because you, you just, I just have to know what Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are up to right this very moment. I'm going to be honest, man. I cannot take a whole football season of this. Okay? All right, we all know about it. Let's just, for, let's just leave them alone and stop talking about it, right? But, but for some folks, I mean, this is how they medicate. It distracts them from the nothingness, from the void. And that feeling, that void, that feeling of emptiness, it's actually a gift. And it's profoundly important. It's there to show us, like, like a compass pointing us to the reality that everything that we see, everything that we can build our life upon in this life, it's fleeting. It's transitory. It's going to fade. And at the risk of sounding like a cliche, I, 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 just, I just have to say it. There's one thing, there's one person who's not going to change. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the rock of our salvation, the rock of our joy, the rock of our confidence. And that's the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ. And our entire house needs to be built upon that foundation. Our life as a whole needs to be rooted in Jesus Christ so that we're getting all of our worth, all of our value, all of our identity, our core sense of peace and joy solely from the victorious living Christ. So real quickly, I'm going to say three things here. We're, we're actually almost done, but I want to say three things real quickly 
about what it means to base your life on Jesus Christ. Number one, we recognize that Jesus tells us everything we need to know about God. This is something I hit hard all the time at Village. Because I think that on some level as Christians, we all believe this, but I don't think we really believe it. And I don't think we understand the implications of this. But the New Testament tells us repeatedly and consistently, if you want to know what God is like, you look no further than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one all scriptures wanting to point you to. God's... God says in the scriptures, through Jesus, if you know me, you know the Father, he says. If you see me, you see the Father. Colossians 1.15 tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact, everybody say exact, not approximate, the exact representation of God's very essence. So God is like Jesus. And by the way, God has always been like Jesus. In fact, there's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. As a human race, we haven't always known this, but now we do. And now we need to rethink everything we thought we knew about God in light of the risen Christ. Because God is like Jesus. That is a firm foundation you can stand upon. And any other picture of God that you may have in your mind that doesn't agree with that, I don't care where you got it from, you need to discard it. Because God is like Jesus. And any other idea you have about God, any interpretation of the Scriptures needs to cohere with that reality. And if you can't make sense of a certain passage in light of the crucified Christ who spread out his arms and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, you just need to say, you know what, maybe I haven't figured out how to interpret that passage yet. So for now, I'm going to set it aside because I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on Christ. That's our firm foundation. Does that make sense? I'm telling you, it's a game changer. Number two, we recognize that Jesus tells us everything we need to know about ourselves. Who am I? What is my worth? What is my purpose? What is my identity? Let Jesus Christ tell you that, and guess what? He tells you that definitively on the cross. Calvary tells you what you're worth. You are worth dying for, God says. Now, there are a lot of other competing voices in our heads that try to give us a source of worth and identity and value. There will be voices in your head that tells you that uh, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what everybody else thinks about me. And to the degree that we believe those voices and to the degree that they disagree with what God says, we're going to be unhealthy people. And we're going to be building our lives upon the dysfunction that we inherited from this fallen world. But to make Jesus Christ our foundation, partially what that means is, all of my worth, all of my value, all of my identity comes from Jesus Christ and what he says definitively about me on the cross. The only way I know how to live in this reality is to engage in the practices of worship and prayer in Scripture. Where every morning, before I get to the list of things I got to do today, yes, I got to work on next Sunday's sermon. Yes, I got to lead staff meeting. 
yeah, I got to prepare for a board meeting, I think, next week, right? Next week? Two weeks? Yeah. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got a list of things I do as a pastor. The most important part of my day and the most important use of my time is when I sit in my prayer chair in my office and I do nothing but just absorb God's loving presence. And I let God remind me that apart from my performance and apart from any of your opinion of me, what matters is God's opinion. And God gave me his solid definitive opinion when his son stretched out his arms on the cross. That's where my worth comes from. That's where my value comes from. And as long as that's being nurtured in me in prayer, as long as I'm getting full of God's loving presence every day, now I'm, empo now I'm empowered to actually be who he's called me to be and say what he's called me to say, regardless of how people will respond to it. But if I'm not cultivating that practice where every day I'm getting full of the Father's love towards me, then I'm going to be feeding off of people. I'm going to be feeding off of your opinions. And now everything I say is going to be shaped by, oh my gosh, how are they going to respond to this? And that, that becomes a very unhealthy, dangerous situation. So the firm foundation of my life is allowing Jesus to tell me who I am in Christ. And, and, and allowing that voice to gain preeminence through the practices of prayer and scripture and worship and, and all of these things that we do, crowding out those competing voices that tell me, no, Ryan, you are what you do. You are what you have. You are what other people say about me. No, I'm what Christ says. I'm a child of God, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's who I am. That's who I am. So I don't want to just know that. I want to know it. I want to experience it. And I do that through the practices of prayer. That's a firm foundation that you can stand on. And it's an unshakable foundation. If things are going great in your life, guess what? God's love for you is expressed on Calvary. If things are going terrible in your life, God's love for you is expressed on Calvary. If you're rich, God's love is expressed for you on Calvary. If you're poor, God's love is expressed for you on Calvary. If your body's healthy, God's love is expressed for you on Calvary. If you just found out you got two weeks to live, none of that changes. That's why it's a firm, unshakable foundation. Base your life on that. Amen? And finally, number three, we commit to building the house God wants us to build. This means that God is the center of everything. You, you seek his kingdom first, and because you're grounded in his love, you commit to living God's way. And your life begins to look like Jesus. You begin to live in love as Christ has loved you. You forgive your enemies. You don't retaliate. You don't demonize people you disagree with. You share God's heart for the lost and the poor and the marginalized. In short, I could just say it like this. You begin to live Sermon on the Mount Christianity. You begin to live the way Jesus called you to live. Not by your own strength and will, but by God's spirit, by his empowering grace, but with your participation, with your yes. And guess what? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like the man who's built your house on the rock. And when the storm comes, that house isn't going anywhere. So that's the solid rock we need to build our life on. Let's take Jesus seriously. And with his grace, let's live the way he's called us to live. Let's be fruitful people bearing the fruits of righteousness and justice. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.